I've never felt like a stranger at home. The New York Times, May 20th, 1992. <clears throat> Mic check, one, two, one, two. Okay, introduction right here. The Ordinary Times. Check, one, two. Stories for people who only attend church on Christmas and Easter. Where we explore the parallel narratives between the good news and the good newspaper. Extra, extra. In a letter to the editor from 1992, a Japanese American guest columnist told how he never felt like an outsider on the small farm in Utah that he was raised on. His parents were first and second generation Americans, and they raised all their children as Americans. As far as the author was concerned, he looked, acted, felt, and was perceived as 100% American. That's great for him, but it's not universal for everyone. I know this because a letter to the editor was in response to an earlier article by another Japanese-American writer. It was an April 29, 1992 op-ed entitled, Bashed in the USA. You just had to be there at the time musically to understand the reference. The 1980s and the early 90s brought with them a resurgence of anti-Japanese sentiment in popular media and the general populace, first seeded in the Second World War. According to the author, it posed a question that still plagues Japanese Americans. Are you Japanese or American? Both articles were written by authors of the same nationality, citizenship, and ethnicity. Their parents also shared the same experience of being interned into American concentration camps during World War II. Yet each had a different perspective on their American experience and that of many other Japanese Americans. Sometimes people can technically be in the same group, yet their similar experiences can be recorded differently depending on their perspective. But this phenomenon isn't only a racial one, but it can also be religious. That difference in perspective can affect your fidelity to your faith when there is friction between you and fellow believers. We can see a similar thing happening in this Palm Sunday's Gospel reading of Luke 19 verses 28 through 40. All four Gospels share a version of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem before his Passion Week, yet the different details and their foreshadowing on future events by the end of the week show similar experiences can be recorded differently depending on the perspective. Luke tells how his followers praise Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem as a triumphant king while criticized by his enemies, the Pharisees. Other Gospels picture it as a generally jubilant crowd, yet this image will be juxtaposed later with that of crowds who called for him to be crucified in course with his enemies, the chief priest. 
Jesus' experience takes the ethnic and nationalistic experience of the two Japanese-American writers and expands it to be a religious experience as well. Today we will explore that area even more with my friend Dr. Ansel Augustine. He is the author of the new book, Leveling the Praying Field, Can the Church We Love Love Us Back? In it, he explores the contemporary and historic experiences of black Catholics in their relationship to the church at large. As a Protestant, I believe that it initiates a discussion that will be useful to many Christians in several branches of the body of Christ, because sometimes people can technically be in the same group, yet their similar experiences can be recorded differently, depending on their perspective. Gospel The Gospel according to Luke Chapter 19 Verses 28 to 40 And when he had thus spoken He went before Ascending up to Jerusalem And it came to pass When he was come nigh to Bethphage And Bethany At the mount called the Mount of Olives He sent two of his disciples saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in which at your entry ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him, and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way, and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the cult, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the cult? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. Extra, extra. Ansel, you are a well-known figure, uh, not only in New Orleans, but across the nation, at least apparently in Loyola Marymount out in Los Angeles, in D.C., in New York. Uh, I imagine a few more places. I know you do the Religious Ed Conference every year in Anaheim, so at least those parts. But of course, people may know you from speaking at those events. They may know you from being a youth minister years ago at St. Peter Claver. They may know you as an esteemed brother of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. There's a rumor that, that I'm associated with that fraternity, but I don't you know, oh, I don't, no, I don't know there's a rumor that I had something to do with you becoming associated with this fraternity, <laughs> but I don't know. We'll leave these rumors at the table, bro. I know. Like, was it was that the whispers who said, look at all these rumors? Might have, the, um, <laughs> might have that group incorrect. Uh, nevertheless, uh, they may also know you from accompanying, musically accompanying the Gras Indian on Super Sunday. They might also know you as the, uh, the holy hot boy and uh, doing the opening prayer for Manny Fresh's birthday. So, you know, there are a lot of roles that you fulfill out there in the community. But the newest one is what I want to discuss. Of course, it's audio. I don't know. I'm holding up this book. Like right. I'm like, it. well, how's he going to do this? All right. <laughs> yeah. Like, you see it? You see it? <laughs> so I ran across this book called Leveling the Praying Field. And it says that it's from Ansel Augustine. I assume that is you. So when... I first encountered it, you know, I know you from college and you know, you've always been to the gym, always been physically fit and athletic. 
So I assume like, oh, he's doing the Reggie White route. He's gonna, you know, do preaching and he's gonna, you know, play professional football. So I assume there was some expansion team, maybe, you know, the Jerusalem Giants, the Vatican Vikings, you know, you're gonna sign up for it and you know the religious yeah, why didn't I think of that? I'm making all these religious teams and like, oh they already have one. Yes. Of course. But then I started reading this. You know, Ansel, you've always been very intelligent. You've always been amazing. You've always been a big brother, aspirational figure for me. But the nature of knowing someone personally, you always forget just just how smart, how clever, how involved, how in the know about their field they are. Now, I know you're Dr. Ansel Augustine, but this book is dead on it on so many levels. You know, I'm just reading through it at night and, you know, making little comments to my wife while I'm reading it. I'm like, man, Ansel's really on it. You know, like, look at these, look at these notations at the bottom. You know, all things on every level, I feel like it is up on the argument as far as the DEI, diversity inclusion conversation. It is very grounded in African-American history and contemporary issues. So you, uh, you talk about Brian Stevenson and his, his fight for justice. You talk about issues like our figures like Sophia Bowman. We have uh, Brian Massengale writing forward. But also, this is about being a black Catholic. So it is very much written to be approachable to a local congregation and be used as an asset. So you can really work through the chapters easily and there's questions at the end mm-hmm. to apply these things to their life. So I've, well, I've been reading it here, I've been thinking like, man, I got to send this to, you know, various people in different black Catholic churches I know, I'm like, hey, you got to read this, hey, you got to read this. So I feel like it is grounded enough in the academic argument to be informative, but it is very workable in a person's intimate life. And it goes through your story, your personal narrative. So it's the life of the church in the here and now, and the life of Ansel, almost as a memoir, which I think is important because people are going to be applying this to their own personal lives so they can imagine what you went through. So all that to say, bring us up to speed. How did you get involved in the Black Catholic Church, ministries you've been involved in, and how did that bring you to writing this book, Leveling the Praying Field, and the church we love, love us back? You know, uh, Jason, and when we look at, like, I guess the story of, uh, you know, when we met at, you know, at our undergrad university, the other Loyola, you know, one of the other Loyolas yeah. in New Orleans, yeah. um, you know, I was on a journey. I think you got there my senior year or when I was in grad school, I forget which one, but it was in that time period. I was going through, a, like, I guess my own formation and transformation in my life. You know, I just left the music industry, you know, working as a DJ at Q93, uh, working with, you know, different record labels. And, you know, we had the after, you know, after party entertainment company, you know, thing going on, but I was still searching and, you know, um, you know, you know, I lived in different places, but New Orleans is my home in regards to the longest place I've lived in my life where uh, Mm -hmm. growth and formation and in, I guess, inspiration happens. And so my home church, St. Peter Claver here in New Orleans, which just made 101 years you know uh we made 100 years during the pandemic we didn't really do much because it was a pandemic um you know i was asked to come back here by uh you know reverend dejan one of the campus ministers at uh loyola at the time we started the genesis gospel choir we start uh you know i helped her with hour of power with your line brother daniel doing that kind of stuff so um 
you know, just coming back here, uh, Father Mike, who was like my dad, the pastor here for 30 years until he died of a heart attack. One night, one day asked me, you know, we were short on adult chaperones. Can you chaperone the lock-in? You know, we need some males. And so I said, all right. Uh, I did. I fell in love with the young people. And then every Wednesday when I could get a ride or when I finally got my vehicle, uh, I would be at U Group at Peter Claver. And then I started learning about Loyola Institute for Ministry and the Institute for Black Catholic Studies at Xavier. And, um, you know, furthering my education in those spaces, Father Mike said, if you do it, you know, you can work here at Peter Claver. So that's how I became the youth minister here at Peter Claver. Uh, presently, I'm the director of the Office of Black Catholics for the Archdiocese of New Orleans. I'm just doing this podcast interview from my old office here at St. Peter Claver. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but, you know, that's how I fell in love. And then learning more about the history, you know, and the connections of uh, black culture with Catholicism and Christianity in general, you know, just had me on uh, like one angry because you know this wasn't taught to us at Loyola or any other spaces but then also gave me the uh, charge well if I'm in these spaces let me talk about it and God has just placed me in certain spaces to be an advocate and sometimes a thorn in the side you know in these national organizations for this uh, so that's how it got started you know and uh, you know went from a youth minister to what I'm doing now even though my heart is always with youth and young adults and campus ministers hence why the book is written in the way it is to be a resource for people in those ministries to have these discussions with the groups that they minister with so you're you're in a um, a very interesting niche group because actually um, the format of this podcast usually is me going through the news like find news articles in New York Times through history and then I basically take the lectionary reading for that Sunday and work through basically a sermon format, right? Uh, using like a narrative sermon. But since it is not ordinary time, you know, it's a two-part season, um, I've been doing interviews. And the first interview we did was a uh, brother from uh, the um, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which is, of course, you know, its own right. And Catholicism is interesting because we have a lot of uh, subgroups within the one group that sort of are semi-autonomous, if you will. Um, so, of course, you get like the Ukrainian Greek, you get the married knights, things of that nature. But black Catholics are interesting because even though there's a cultural difference and there may be like uh, certain aspects of the mass that may be rethought, rethought and rephrased um, as far as like, you know, are we going to sing this part? Are, are we going to show our culture in this part? You guys are well within the Roman rite of the Catholic Church. Correct. So one thing that comes through in this um, in this book is feeling like you're not uh, fully appreciated in what you bring to the Roman rite of, of, of the universal church. Um, but sort of being there as like, uh, okay, now we need a minority thing, sort of song and dance, um, bring you guys out to perform sometimes. But the breadth and the richness and the, uh, the greatness historically and currently is not fully incorporated in the um, fullness right. of the current church. So, so um, tell me a little bit about that. Okay. Being uh, demanding respect while staying within the church. Right. Well, I, I think, you know, whenever I talk, you know, about the book or just even, you know, November is Black Catholic History Month in the in the Catholic Church. 
mm-hmm. you know, whenever I give talks during those times or even uh, during Black History Month in February, you know, I keep telling people about sometimes, our, you know, the church doesn't know its whole history. And of course, there's a large breadth and, you know, stuff to that. But I, I use this as an affirmation to my, you know, African-American youth that I work with to help them. We belong here. You know, we're not just here in the church by happenstance. We've been here. You know, the fact that there have been three popes of African descent in the history of the church, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, we presently have five African-American bishops, active bishops around the country. You know, we have, mm-hmm. you know, the first African-American cardinal just elected in the history of the church. Six uh, yeah. African-Americans on the road to canonization to be capital S, you know, saints, you know, in the church. You know, and, you know, yeah. you know, the history of St. Augustine, the oldest black Catholic church down the street here in Treme. You know, and those stories are part of what has helped make the church what it is today. And then even when you look at the oldest Bible in existence is in Ethiopia, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and just those stories, you know, the stories that take place in the Bible, that's North Africa, you know, by, you know, uh, designation, you know, so the, 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 you know, Christianity or Catholicism in Africa is older than the Vatican, you know, but some people don't understand that, you know, Uh, and those stories are supposed to be told. And then when you look at here in America, you know, the founding of uh, Los Angeles, the founding of St. Augustine, Florida, New Orleans, uh, you know, Baltimore, you know, there were enslaved, but also free people of color that were Catholic, that were part of those founding, the, the, and I can't think, I think it's the Sable, the founder of Chicago, uh, if I'm uh, saying his name correctly. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a black Catholic Uh man, you know, but we've been here, Mm -hmm. you know, and establishing the church in this place and space, you know, whether it was our enslaved ancestors that put the blood, sweat, and tears to build physically, or our free people of color that uh, empowered, you know, other people that, uh, you know, uh, be a part of this faith. You know, we're not strangers to this, is what I try to help people understand, and I help try to empower our young people and our young adults to take up the mantle of leadership in regards to keeping that, you know, fight and um, ministry going in some way, shape, or form. So, especially here in, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, New Orleans, you know, the civil rights movement, you know, Homer Plessy, black Catholic male, uh, you know, from St. Augustine Church uh, with the Indians. Like you said, I'm with the Mardi Gras Indians. And not only do I drum, I'm the medicine man for Wild Chapatulas now. Um, you know, mm-hmm. Big Chief Tootie Montana, whose statue is in Congo Square, you know, black Catholic. You know what I'm saying? Venerable Mother Henri DeLille, the foundress of the Sister Holy Family, you know, black Catholic, you know, and uh, her, uh, her role here in Treme you know, is shaped, and she's one of the six on the road to canonization. So we're, it's no stranger to this. And I think that's where you talk about the, um, what, what, I forget what word you use when you asked the question. But um, when you talk about us demanding respect, I think that's what you said, demanding respect. We've mm-hmm. been here, you know, so don't act like we're not here. Uh, 2017 was the Convocation of Catholic Leaders. And uh, it was uh, 5,000 people gathering in Orlando, you know, to address the Pope's uh, agenda on how we as Americans can be better reaching out to the most vulnerable in our society. And like a week before uh, the event, I was already doing a workshop with Bishop Ricard and uh, Bishop Fab, now Archbishop Fab of Louisville. Um, and at the last minute, they asked me to be on the general session panel on the main stage on a panel uh, to talk about uh, ministry to the peripheries. And, you know, and I called him out on the fact that you just did a history of the Catholic Church yesterday. You focused on our Hispanic brothers and sisters. You spoke focused on our, our white brothers and sisters and everything. But you did not say anything about the black, you know, whether uh, African-American, African, 
uh, Caribbean or, you know, our Latino, Hispanic brothers and sisters that might identify our presence, you know, when we're just invisible. Yep. That's the problem in the church. And so that's why resources like the book or even the, I don't have one with me here to hold up on the, for you to see, you know, they can't see it. But the African-American Catholic Youth Bible we put together several years yeah. ago, um, or just other resources, you know, for us to help share our story. So, yeah, that's through the demanding of the respect is for us to share the story so that others can share it or others can learn from it and others can take it and run the baton with it, you know? Now, look, on the other side, so you have that struggle. So I was in a meeting a couple months ago. Actually, you know, Percy got me uh, a job doing an illustration job for one of the um, uh, U.S. Conference of Bishop, Catholic Bishops, um, sort of like minority focus, right? So I was in, in a couple of meetings with them and got to be like a fly on the wall. I remember it was one of the days after PBS released the Henry Louis Gates documentary on the black church. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to listen because I'd already been in conversations with, you know, I got to get the, the Protestant ear on, you know, what what he got right about, you know, Black Baptists or the Black AM, or the AMEs or like uh, Black Pentecostal Church. Um, and I'm Protestant myself. Right. So, you know, I, I got that perspective like, oh, he got, you know, that um, Church of God in Christ, he got that date wrong. He didn't think about this. But I got to get the Black Catholic perspective, which was we were left out. Right. Totally left out. You know, and I understand the perspective from Henry Lewis Gates was probably black led congregation. So he didn't talk about blacks in the Southern Baptist Church. He didn't talk about blacks in other predominantly white institutions. But it seems like that is a unique challenge um, that African American religion is usually always perceived on the national level as a Protestant thing or, you know, some type of Pentecostal thing. Um, when you do have, you, know, you do have St. Louis, you do have Baltimore, you have New Orleans, of course. You know, it, out here, you have, you have um, California. You have so many, and not just these little places, across the board in every area, there's a large percentage, even if it's not the majority, of black Christians that are Catholic. So talk about that struggle in, in battling inside the church to be respected and recognized, but letting your black um, siblings of different Christian denominations know that, hey, the story is with us as well. We are part of the black religious experience. Right. You know, uh, as you were talking, uh, Jason, uh, I thought about Sister Thea Bowman when she uh, spoke to the USCCB and she started off with the spiritual, uh, Negro spiritual, sometimes I feel like a motherless child which she's saying and sometimes within the church and even outside of the church we're like where do we belong now here in new orleans the hotbed of black catholicism you know yeah. we we here we got xavier university the only catholic hbcu in the country uh we got the three ca- catholic high schools uh black catholic high schools we got uh the headquarters of the knights of peter claver where our brother percy works you know um you know mm-hmm. and just the 26 now you know, and that's from, it used to be 52 black Catholic churches in the archdiocese, you know? So, I mean, we have spaces and places where we are welcome. And sometimes we take that for granted until God forbid a Katrina happens when we're sent somewhere else. And we're like, man, you know, black Catholics, we go to a Catholic church and they look at us like we're foreigners, you know, coming in there. You know, I remember that's how I felt bringing my young people to different churches when we were evacuated in Houston and in Dallas, trying to, 
you know, find a place where we could worship, you know, and it's also to get them yeah. out of the apartments we were all stuck in together, you know, just trying to share. But anyway, um, but that's a common theme and a common story. You know, when we talk to our brothers and sisters, uh, you know, even when I'm in meetings around the country, you know, in other places that may not have a large black Catholic population, and they might see officer black Catholics. So when we start to talk, when we start talking about our faith or traditions, you know, helping people educate and understand, look, this is the history, you know, and it is yeah. tough because, you know, some people say, oh, you're part of that white church, you know, the Catholic church, you know, and that means they don't yeah. know the story. You feel me? Um, yeah. Like, oh, uh, you mean the St. Augustine church? <laughs> right. You, you know what I'm saying? It's oh, so, you mean the Athanasius church? Like, right, you know, right. so many black greats, man. Right. But that's not, people not even knowing the history of who these saints and where they come from are, you know, um, but it's like I said, it's it, it's up to us to tell those stories. And even, you know, with the book, you know, going back to talking about the book, you know, they want us at the table, even on the national level, you know, with these national organizations, you know, like I was a thorn in their side when I'd be at the meetings or even on the board telling them, what about our black Catholic, you know, churches? What about our Native American Catholic church? You know, just speaking up for the people that weren't at the table because the focus was the Eurocentric perspective and because of numbers, the Hispanic perspective, you know what I'm saying? That was the diversity, yeah. group, you know, that everybody defaulted to. Um, and so when the murder of George Floyd happened, you know, they wanted resources all of a sudden. Oh, uh, Dr. Augustine, can you help us put together, you know, we website with resources or help us write our statement on anti-racism and or could you look this over? And then I realized there was not really a Catholic resource out there that addressed this issue from a Catholic faith-based perspective for youth, campus ministers, theology teachers in high schools to talk about this, hence the questions and um, different things, of the way the book is laid out to um, yes. share those stories. And that's why I even put my stories in there because, for example, two days ago, I spoke with the USCCB, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. They have a gathering mm -hmm. of campus ministers that work in HBCUs, you know, so, Catholic people that may have Newman centers, they may be at, you know, one university, but they also work with the HBCU down the street or on the other side of town. <clears throat> and one of the one of the priests said this. And this is a priest that I've known forever. He said, Answer, reading this book and being in this group helped me realize that I wasn't overreacting because there were so many times that I felt something was happening. And I didn't say I didn't want to label that as a racist act. I just said that's just a one and done thing but not understanding the systemic uh, realities that he was living in, you know? Uh, and it's a brother from Lake Charles, Louisiana, but now works in uh, Howard University, you know, good guy. Mm -hmm. But it's just those kind of realities, <coughs> excuse me, that uh, we were trying to address. But yeah, it's, it all goes back to still, you know, you can go back, the church has written so many documents, Catholic church has written so many documents on racism. And I can think back to the 60s and 70s, you know, and there, if you look at the documents from the 60s and 70s, it probably says the same thing that the book that just came out in 2022 is still saying. So we're yeah. still battling those realities inside and outside of the church, which is sad for us to just be as black Catholics in the United States. Gospel. The Gospel according to Luke. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, 
that he spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now, at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Extra, extra. Tell me of a memory of either Christmas or Easter at church. Okay, memory. Now, now people ask me about stuff before Katrina, and I don't remember a lot. You know, even even <laughs> you when people from our age group talk about when we were at Loyola together. So I think for me, and I'm looking at uh, some of the old pictures from church on my background behind my computer screen. I remember uh, there were a couple of years I would play Santa Claus for a Christmas Eve mass at St. Peter Claver, you know, because the children's mass, you know, uh, the six o'clock. Santa would come in and talk about, you know, you know, and some people had an issue with it. Santa has nothing to do with the faith and, you know, whatever it is. But it is <laughs> trying to meet the young people, like the children where they're at, because they're not really paying attention to what's going on in mass. You know, the children, they're wanting to go mm -hmm. home and open gifts, you know, so just trying to tell them about the moral aspects, you know, and what Christ has done for them and who Jesus is and why, you know, we're celebrating this day because they're going to hear it more from a figure they understand than they will from the priest at that at that time you know and so uh mm -hmm. i remember doing that and of course this being new orleans christmas eve 85 degrees and humid and i'm sweating through the santa suit you know but uh <laughs> whatever yeah <laughs> that, that, that's what i that's what comes to mind you know uh the previous episode i was talking with um Sue Park Her, who who actually works in racial reconciliation in uh, Mennonite church mm -hmm. and she's korean uh, Korean American from Los Angeles and she used to be Korean Baptist and she talked about one of her memories of Christmas was like a, a Korean Baptist deacon dressed up as white Santa Claus and that was like the memory because <laughs> you know we, we you know in our versions like we had black Santa Claus in New Orleans and black culture but you know elsewhere it's just like no you've got to meet them where they are so but th those are funny stories but I think it's a greater it's next something greater of you have to meet people where they are in their references right. to bring the message of the gospel to them and, and yeah. what the Sino story is. And I feel like that's one of the things you hit on in the book where the church at large is, is as a whole sort of ignorant of black history and black contemporary experience and ministering the gospel to that. Because most churches, even predominantly black Catholic churches, will probably have a non-black uh, minister. Right. But yeah, a lot of times, it depends, but even now, so when you come home to New Orleans with the reality of gentrification, with the reality of changing demographics, you'll have more, not more, but you'll have more than we used to, let me be clear, you know, non-black members being part of the parish. Maybe not in leadership, yeah. but part of the parish, but part of the ignorance that you said about church, um, struggling to meet black people in the unified in the experiences that we have today is because of the lack of black leadership at the top you know like i said yeah. we just got our first african-american cardinal in the history of the church two thousand plus years you understand what i'm saying the first african-american cardinal come on you know then that was what uh 2020 the 30th anniversary of the 
Black Catholic History Month, you know, the November 2020. And I was working for him. That's when I was working for in D.C. under yeah. Archbishop Gregory, and he became Cardinal Gregory, you know. And uh, I mean, exactly. I didn't get to go to the trip to Vatican. It was pandemic. They wouldn't let anybody come. But the fact of the matter is, you know, just those moments, you know, are the reality of the sacrifice and the struggle and the prayers of our ancestors and elders to witness something like that. But we have so much far to go. He's only one out of I don't know how many cardinals there are, you know, but also when you and there are black cardinals from around the country, but he's the first African-American. Yeah. Um, but even in the United States, five active African-American uh, bishops out of, I think it's 200 some bishops, you know what I'm saying? So that's a solid. Yeah. So, so how are they going to hear our issues and our struggles? You know, if it's not what's talked about. So when we talk about like issues like pro-life, you know, from a black Catholic perspective, not to say anybody's pro-abortion or anything like that from a Catholic perspective, you know, and I'm not here to step mm -hmm. on the political toes. But when we're at the table, when we talk about pro-life, we're also talking about racism, mass incarceration, uh, poor education, yeah. you know, stuff that's plaguing our community that sometimes we're only left to deal with on our own. So that's why mm -hmm. I see youth and young adults leaving because they say the church doesn't care about what we care about sometimes. So, yeah, yeah that's the struggle. You know, um, in, in those meetings and that event that, that I mentioned earlier, um, that I was working with the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, um, one person who spoke at that event and in that meeting said with a big vocal voice, actually uh, did the afterward for your book, Bishop Sherry, who is a wonderful figure, and his sermon, or his speech, because I guess it was just a few minutes, uh, centered on, uh, I'm black, I'm Catholic, and I'm here. And um, I, it, it seems like that's the message, you know, it's to not just be some, be the thorn in the church's side, but also that shows faithfulness. Despite whatever things that I'm arguing about, I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'm here for the long haul. I'm here to serve the church as an internal critic, but that's also the role of a prophet. Right. Yeah, and he, he's very prophetic. And if you look at Father Brian Massengill, who's um, received a lot of scorn by being open and honest about who he feels he needs to be, he's called to be, you know, um, and not to even bring this back about me, but, you know, I've been excluded and blackballed in various spaces and places. Even now, one of my greatest pains, bro, is some of my young people that have grown up and got involved in ministry and drank the Kool-Aid, all of a sudden now I'm the problem. Whereas I used to be the yeah. fighting the people so they could have their space, you know, whether they become priests or ministers in whatever shape or form. But for me, is like I said, is the motivation of a Pope Francis uh, ministry to focus on the most uh, vulnerable, the most struggling, those on the peripheries that are ignored, you know, because guess what? Isn't that where Jesus came from? And isn't that was at the yeah. most point where we meet Jesus? So even... Um, and I don't know who will hear this, but the job I came down back home from D.C. to do, the ministry group, I will leave them unnamed. Um, I'm no longer with them because I was calling out their mentality of the way they wanted to come and do ministry in the black community. And I'm like, no, that savior mentality is not going to work. There are gifts that are yeah. already in the community that you need to interact with. And there was mm -hmm. just this gap, you know. So um, I think that's sometimes the challenge for uh, church folk is to really address the needs of the people you know as jesus did in his ministry 
throughout the Bible and throughout the parables and throughout however he ministered, he met people where they were at, you know, yeah. and if there was a time to scorn them or scold them, he did it out of love, not out of uh, superiority, you know, and that's yeah. how I wish ministry more was, especially when it comes from, you know, other groups uh, in the majority trying to deal with black Catholics. Yeah, yeah. They always think we need yeah. to be fixed rather than we already got solutions. You know, just give us the resources so we can do it. So. Gas gospel. The gospel according to Luke. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto him, I tell you that, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Extra, extra. I'm glad you're bringing it back to uh, to Jesus and the gospel, because that's what we're going to bring it to. I, okay. I, don't, I don't know if I told you, but this is a religious uh, podcast. I may have misled you. Maybe think it was a, a baseball podcast. Uh, right. We'll talk about Sandy Sosa later, you know. So, nevertheless, we base each episode on the lectionary reading in the gospel every Sunday. And, of course, Palm Sunday is coming up. And you get the choice out of two scriptures, mm -hmm. one of them being the uh, reading through the Passion, which is entirely too long for this podcast. <laughs> so we're going to go through Palm Sunday reading of Luke 19, 28-40. Of course, that is Jesus going into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, being received by the crowds, yelling Hosanna, um, and praising him. Now, us being Christians, being familiar with that story, reading it at least once a year, we know the flip side is that similar crowds are going to yell, crucify him. Of course, Christ is very much aware of this. So let's explore the sub-theme of your book, Can the Church We Love Love Us Back? Because I feel a parallel in it, in Jesus' experience of the Judaism of his time, into that this religious group that he loved, that he committed his life to, committed his death to, um, he was a critic of, but a critic in love. You mentioned that this book, you keep, you repeatedly say, this is a love letter to the church. Mm. Um, and that's the thing you have to remember about, you know, uh, troublemakers, thorns in the side. Uh, a lot of times it's not just a person who's leaving. It's a person who's sticking with it. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you're, you're sort of calling for an aspect of reform, but also not just reforming the church, remembering mm. who the church really is. You know, in its black history, but it's black membership and the breadth and the beauty that there is. So can you give us some insight into Jesus's story through your story in the book? OK, I, honestly, uh, as you as you share that, I, I just feel like that is my motto in anything and everything I do when I came to know him is Jesus. You know, um, you know, we're, and I look at his life. He didn't do the popular thing. He didn't do the easy thing. He did the right thing, you know. And when I look at our ancestors in faith that also modeled their lives on Jesus, whether they were Catholic or not, you know, looking at, you know, our frat brother, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, the third good marshals, you know, I'm just giving those shout outs real quick, um, you know, but even um, from a Catholic perspective, you know, Sister Thea Bowman, uh, you yeah. know, uh, 
you know, I'm thinking about the white priest, you know, Father Mike, who was here at Peter Claver, white guy from Vermont, but studied through Selma. His mentor, Father Willette, was a confidant to Reverend Dr. King. So sometimes when you see the pictures of Re Dr. King with a uh, white priest, sometimes it's Father Willette, sometimes it's the priest from the University of Notre Dame at the time. But, you know, just to be in those uncomfortable spaces, um, even as we look through Palm Sunday, you know, yes, we get the, you know, like right now, people are happy about the book, but I know that there are a lot of people that aren't happy about this book. So I'm getting, you know, and I get those crucifixion, those nails being, you know, you know, coming at me in their own ways, even from my own community, the kids I raised, like I said, that, you know, think, you know, Ansel's just on some, you know, trying to make a name for himself tip, which is the last thing in the world. You know what I'm saying? You know, but the fact that the matter is, you know, with mentors like Bishop Cherie, with Father, like Father Massingale, um, like even Reverend D, Reverend Dejan, when she was at Loyola, you know, she didn't do what mm -hmm. it was the easy and the popular thing. She did what she felt. And, you know, these two men felt was are the right things to do, you know, in their heart because of the faith that, that is in them. Just as Christ said, look, I'm here to help these folks. They might not understand it. They might not appreciate it. You know, they might they're going to kill me for it. You know, my humanness. But the fact of the matter is, this is the right thing to do because this is what my God called me to do. So even as I grew in awareness about the spirituality, the the cultural aspects, you know, and even experienced some of the the hatred for trying to express those things in various ways, um, the fact of the matter is, in my heart, because of my faith and because of what I've been taught and exposed to, I know this is right, and I know God is calling me to do this. Because guess what? Every time before I do anything, even before you know, I logged on to this. It was a moment of prayer to say, God, empty me and fill me with your spirit to do what needs to be done. And let this be your work, not my work. And, you know, I didn't think whether it was keynoting at L.A. Uh, Ute Day a couple of months, weeks ago, you know, up there in uh, Anaheim, California, uh, to even just, you know, uh, yesterday having a conversation with a gentleman about just ministry, you know, at St. Augustine Church down the street, you know, after after their rosary and mass that I go to on Wednesday afternoon. All those are ways for me to be who I need to be in those spaces and places, even with the Indians and the culture bearers. You know, Sunday I was out at Congo Square praying and, you know, just being that presence, not to think I'm holier than anybody, but just to like wherever I'm at. If I'm a child of God, I need to bring God in those spaces, however it comes, you know, but not in the form of judgment, but out of love and being that presence of love and God in those spaces. So that goes even with the book, you know, that goes even with the ministry of Christ. Wherever I've been, whatever I've done, is to represent him. Me being a Protestant, I think one thing that uh, is popular in America that was brought from my section, my neighborhood of Christianity, uh, that I think won't go down well historically, uh, is prosperity gospel, prosperity theology. Hmm. Um, contentious subject, um, but I think, and, and there's some some good preachers I think who, who may have fallen into that, but altogether they may be solid. But here's the, the major critique: um, things are not going to be always happy and roses, and you know God making rich just because He did not do that for Christ. So. I think one witness of the Catholic Church that is great to the, um, the body of Christ in general is we are called to follow Christ even in his suffering. 
you talked about this for the book, with you trying to mimic Christ, with you being the witness, uh, sort of in the in the wilderness, has brought you some suffering, has brought you some misunderstanding. On your personal level, how do you deal with that? <laughs> well, there are times me and Percy have long conversations, right? You surround yourselves with people to make sure you're not going crazy. And, you know, and those folks and I, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, some of the men that are, you know, Bishop Sharia, uh, Father Massengill, when we talk, that they have the uh, uh, integrity to call me to task if they think I'm wrong. You Percy too, you know? No, bro, I think, yep. you know, we might disagree. I'm like, no, you're not seeing it. I'm trying to help you understand. But, you know, I know that if they're saying something, they're saying it from a genuine place, right? So having those spaces and places, but also being in a moment of prayer, you know, with God on a regular basis. I pray regularly, you know, not to, like I said, not to say I'm some super holy person, but I think people see something because, like I said, with the uh, the cultural uh, communities here, whether it's the Indians or the baby dolls, they'll call me to pray about something or help me help, you know, like be a community resource type person for people, you know, and that are in need, you know, like, for example, you know, New Orleans, we've been having these murders and these carjackings and all this stuff, you know, they know, and I've been the one that they've had to be, you know, help organize prayer services or, you know, pre, uh, be present at funerals or stuff like that. And it's not to say I'm some special person, but it's like I said, just being that Christ-like figure, even in my own struggles, right? You know, just being there. And sometimes it helps God being in my ear saying, look, I'm not done with you yet. You might think because of what people are saying or doing or treatment that, that you know uh, that your time is done there's no worth in what you're doing but you know we're not here to do the great you know salvation stuff that's god's job our job is to just plant the seeds and let the harvest reap in its own time and so i just have those moments like wednesdays when i go to mass at uh saint augustine the rosary and mass that's my time to pray because sundays i'm running around here at peter claver like a chicken with my head cut off doing the ushering stuff or reading you know whichever you know or both you know because if i read i do both i read and then i go back to usher but um just being in those spaces and places where i'm fed as well because i can't give what i don't have and if we look at the um uh the passion you know when jesus is in the garden of gethsemane you know he asked this is the son of god fully human fully divine asking for this cup to be moved from him you know even though he knew you know he had to do it so who you know, as a human, I don't have the divine part. You feel me? You know, and I, there are times I know that I wish, like, man, I don't want to go through this. I wish I wasn't dealing with this betrayal. I wish I wasn't dealing with these shortcomings that I'm feeling. But I just know it's part of the journey that God has for me. And just as we might be crucified on Good Friday, we as people of faith will experience the resurrection on Easter as well. So the good and bad have to be there. I've never felt like a stranger at home. The New York Times. All right. A little surprise. I got two questions I didn't prep you for. The easy ones. Okay. So don't worry. I'm not going to put this on TikTok and be like, ah, look. <laughs> All right. You ready? First one. All real right, quick. Go Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I, I say Jesus is love, just as God is love. 
and that love resides in each of us and so we have that love that we are called to share as children of him in whatever way shape or form the world needs it Jesus is love I will inform Lionel Richie's uh, lawyers that you uh, are plagiarizing his hit song so. <laughs> well, that's so. our, isn't he our frat brother too we're alright yeah of course alright second question if that, if that is the case what is the gospel huh the gospel is his message of love and so we are called to be the messengers of the gospel in whatever way shape or form they may look like in our settings what i would preach the gospel would be different with my young people here at peter claver versus what i would say and how i would preach that love of the gospel uh with the congo square community uh the indians and the uh, baby dolls it would be different from how i preach the gospel when i do a prison retreat but in each and every way, I'm representing Christ. Praise God for that. You know, I'm gonna let you go, but I just wanna tell you, I'm, I'm halfway, I'm probably on like on page 62 through the book, but also I, I read the end parts too. Um, so I, I felt like the wonderful aid that you give, like, um, like the liturgy that's written out, which is amazing, you know? So like, that's people, 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 like how do I put this in my, yeah, how do I put this into action in my church service? There you go, you know? Um, but one thing, man, that encourages me is a lot. You know, a lot of times we can simplify Catholicism, especially from the outside. Think of it as like, you know, this is a religion of Pope after Pope after Pope. That's where the movement comes from, right? And by default, Pope being a priest, this is uh, a religion moved and shaped by people who are officially religious, uh, single men who have given their life to the church. And, and then everybody else just follow the orders. Um, you talk about your development in the church and, and your, you know, uh, questioning what your role is. So you, I just got to the section where you, uh, you met with two different orders oh, yeah. after Katrina and you were thinking about being um, priest. And there was a gentleman in the second order um, who said, you know, you don't look like a priest. Mm-hmm. And obviously, so you are not a priest now, and I believe you're not a deacon, unless I missed that. No. So, but here's the thing. Catholicism and Christianity is not just shaped by people who are in the ministry, Being, right. you know, the official. Yeah, exactly. So you think about, look, Francis of Assisi never became a priest. He was a deacon. And the Pope is named after him. The Franciscans are named after him. People who don't get down Christianity at all get down with Francis. Uh-huh. We think of Dorothy Day, the Catholic worker movement. She was not uh, She was not a nun. She was not a sister. She was not in any religious order. Uh-huh. But she she brought the, the meeting of, you know, uh, social activism on the left and the church's mercy and tradition and commitment and married them both you know so i just wanted to encourage you man i don't know where you are been in life man but you're doing a beautiful thing man and it was great to be reminded of that um, brother god bless you for that man yeah god bless you too and you know for those of y'all listening uh me and jason have gone back uh like you said 20 some years that's crazy man and uh just yeah. And Jason has always been the same guy I've known him as to be, and that's a genuine. And he's a clown, but in a good way, you know. Yeah, but at horrible the same, jokes, right? Uh, yeah, those don't change. But I think that's my 
Good Friday moment with you, but the love is still the resurrection moment, right? All right, but uh, yeah. But in 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 all of that, brother, though, what you're doing here to help those understand, like I said, um, the holy days, you know, the ordinary time, you know, the fact yeah. of the matter is, no matter where you are in faith, no matter where you are in life's journey, God is there with you, and just remember that. If whoever's listening, you know, the book, like I said, is just a resource. But it's also a reminder that no matter what we face, no matter what we go through, Jesus is walking beside us and at times, you know, carrying us through it. So don't lose hope, family. Okay. Thank you so much, Angel, man. All right, brother. God bless you, man. And thank you for having me. Hey, I'm looking for a sequel to this book, too. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, you know, uh, it'll be a comic book and you're going to draw it. So we'll, we'll talk later. Hey. Hey, graphic novel, look, I'm in L.A. I could walk it down the street and, you know, we get, I don't know who's going to get to play the star role, but, you know, you can have the first day if we want to play you, movie, you know. <laughs> All right, brother. I love you, man, and I'll talk to you soon. Jesus was a minority. Judaism at the time was factitious, with the priestly caste of the Sadducees wielding power over the rabbinic faction of the Pharisees. Far behind these two groups and others in numbers and influence was a reform movement that became known by the title of their leader, Christ. Even though he was the Messiah or King and rode into Jerusalem, the city of David, on a donkey like Israelite kings before him, Jesus the King of the Jews felt like a stranger at home. So I ask you, Listen to your brothers and sisters who may have different genes, but share the same king. Hear them when they talk of their suffering, even when it may be from your siblings. Hold them when they feel neglected, even when it may have been from your neighbors. Comfort them when they confess to feeling crucified even if it may be by your congregation. Because their religious perspective and experiences may be different than yours or much of the church, yet it may be closer to Christ.